Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Here's the thing, fans and friends. If you're going to be in L.A. on March 6th, I hope you'll join me for a live taping of Here's the Thing at the Ace Hotel in downtown L.A. I'll be joined by Nick Offerman of Parks and Recreation. He just doesn't make me laugh. And his wife, Megan Mullally of Will and Grace. I honestly believe that she was programmed by someone from the future to come back and destroy all happiness. Hey, I have feelings too, you know. For details and tickets, go to acehotel.com. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing, my chance to talk with artists, policymakers, and performers, to hear their stories, what inspires their creations, what decisions changed their careers, what relationships influenced their work. In a society where the convenience of food outweighs quality and farm-to-table is marketed as a luxury, it's rare to find someone whose full-time occupation is farmer. And even more rare, as is the case with Scott Chasky, to find one who's also a poet. But the bearded 66-year-old farming virtuoso is nothing if not one of a kind. An Ohio native with a degree in creative writing, Chasky began, in his words, consciously growing food while living in England with his wife in the 1980s, before moving back to the States to take over as the head of Quail Hill Farm in Amagansett, New York. One of the first community-supported farms in the country, Quail Hill began in 1990 as a small piece of land for a few local families. But the concept which hinges on sharing risk with the other farmers has gone global, and Scott Chasky is known in the agricultural world as the, quote, spiritual father of community farming, unquote. So we've been around 27 years, um, and we are part of, I work for a land trust, the uh, Peconic Land Trust, uh, which is a conservation organization that has preserved 12,000 acres of land on the on the east end of Long Island. Now. So Peconic Land Trust cons- is a conservancy that protects land out here. Who had the idea of, let's take some of this land and farm it organically? Did someone come to you? You went to them? How did that happen? Yeah, so so um, two years before we actually came to Amagansett and, and, and hooked up with the Peconic Land Trust, there were 10 families that were heard this about this idea of CSA and, and you know from the beginning of it in western mass your parents not oh they they your were mom and that's your right they were part of the of the first 10 families and that's actually how I got involved because when we I lived in England for many years when we came back bill said you want to come to this meeting about this community farm that we're part of uh, I I obviously wasn't part of it at that time and uh, here I am 20 1989 you came back correct 89 that's right yeah what was dining like in your childhood mm. and your relationship to food when you were a child? Where are you mm. from? Uh, so I grew up in um, western New York near uh, Buffalo, a place called Tonawanda. Uh, <laughs> and um, What would your dad do? He had a, uh, an interesting job. He ran a bookstore at universities. He was, but he was so good at it that he kept getting hired to go on to another university. And so I liked that living around a university and being part of that. Um, and so he ran the bookstore at the University of Buffalo and then at the University of Washington and then finally at Cornell. And so Ithaca became home in the end. And I, I counted as my hometown, even though I didn't get there until I was, 
I think, 17. Those were, so the end of your high school years. Yeah, yeah. Year. I graduated from Ithaca High School, and it was immediately home, even even though I, I don't, I mean, I've never been back to Tonawanda, actually. Right. And where'd you go to college? Went to college 50 miles away in Binghamton, uh, Harper College at the time it was called, yeah. So SUNY Binghamton was Harper SUNY College. SUNY Binghamton was Harper College. And what was, so what was the, the, the relationship with food? Because I think about my family and how... It's unusual. It was what I think back now. Yeah. Well, my mother is a great baker. So uh, Irish mother, Mary, and uh, German father, Harry. And um, I, I, he grew up in a Germanic household, and so meat and potatoes were, you know, was the well, basics. So you grew up? Well, yeah, until— Did you rebel? I rebelled. Surprise, surprise, in the 60s. Right, yeah, right, right. <laughs> How many siblings did you have? Uh, two. To an older sister and a younger sister. Yeah, I was in the middle, the boy in the middle. Yeah. But getting back to food, it was really my mother's Irish recipes and uh, 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 highlighted also on Sunday evenings, every Sunday, by my father's German potato pancakes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So was it sitting down at a table yeah, and yeah. having oh, a very oh, conscious oh, meal? Oh, yeah, very conscious. A well-paced meal? Oh, or was yeah. everybody bolting their food like my house? No, we, we sat and we ate and... Etc. Relaxed. There's there always dessert. It's a, you know, it was it was every evening was you know customary basically. However, I do remember uh, as life got a little busier that there was also the beginning of the TV dinner era. So um, you know, was there a little I, bit I of that? yeah, I experienced that too. So when you were uh, growing up uh, and, and 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 living this way, when did you change your consciousness about what you wanted to eat and didn't want to eat? Well, college. I mean, so I went to um, Harper, Harper College in, in 1968, and in, in the the uh, pretty fiery year, right after the uh, Democratic convention that year. I remember, you know, being shocked wa- watching that. And here I am in in uh, initiation week and uh, or you know in, in introduction to college and being away from home. And the SDS, the local SDS chapter. At, at my university, took over the administration building. Students for a Democratic Students Society. That's who it was. Took over, and, and I was, you know, had no idea of what this was or what was happening. So I mentioned that because my entire consciousness and probably the consciousness of the country changed as well. Yeah, a lot so, of questioning of everything that was yeah, establishment. Everything. Yeah. Absolutely everything. And I mean, how did that play into your eating habits? Uh, Were you well, vegetarian? Yeah, and uh, do you know of the do you know of the Moosewood cookbooks? That's a it's a it's a it. restaurant in Ithaca that started in right right at that time, and and it was you know the first sort of vegetarian outburst really at that time, and so it was cooperative, etc., and so that had tremendous influence, and and also I remember uh, when I left, it may have been the year I left college. Um, Francis Moore LaPay had written Diet for a Small Planet, which sold millions of copies and still still does, as a matter of fact. And that's what I took when I went out into the world to, you know, learn about my own style of cooking and eating, etc. Where did you go to begin that process? Um, everywhere. Traveling. It was a traveling. Yeah. I traveled, yeah. Uh, you know, with a little Volkswagen bug and, and <laughs> you know, it's predictable. Of course. Right? Everywhere. Every, everywhere. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. When did you first go overseas? Did you go overseas before? Uh, probably in, during during college sometime. Sometime in the middle of college. Where'd you, know, you go? The pudding. Uh, Switzerland, France. Um, and what struck you when you were over there? What was happening then for me in the traveling was, was opening to a new world, basically, because all I knew was the United States. So 
I just think about it in terms of for someone who later on goes on to spend a huge part of their adult life growing food. Yeah. Their life is about yeah, yeah, yeah. food and agriculture. Yeah. So, so your relationship to those things was just very ordinary then. I really entered into consciously growing food in England when I moved to England. So this didn't come... Why did to, you move there? Uh, to, to get a graduate degree in, in literature. Oxford. So, and I lived in Oxford for a couple of years, but I actually was studying through an American university, uh, Antioch College, which had a Center for British Studies in London, and, and the fellow who headed the program uh, was studying for a DPhil in Oxford. And so I said, hmm, I like the idea of spending time in Oxford. And I went back and forth to London, got a job as a gardener. Uh, and that was the beginning. Got a job as a gardener, and that was the beginning. Well, well, did, did you seek that job, or that was the only job? Yeah, you yeah, no. Fit I, in? I think it was a local paper, and uh, you know, I had uh, I, I was living in a bed sit. It's called you know what one one a one room little not an apartment, just a room in Oxford. It cost seven pounds a week, and I didn't have any money, so I I got a job as a gardener for a pound an hour. And what happened when you did that job? Uh, it really led to, um, you know, my love of the earth. I, and I worked with gardeners up in a really beautiful place called Boar's Hill outside of Oxford. It's five miles uphill. Actually, there's a famous little woodland on the way up called Binsey Poplars. And there's a great poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins about Binsey. And I rode my bike by that every day. And I worked in these gardens. And I'd come down and spend um, the rest of the day in the Bodleian Library, which was... Heaven on earth. <laughs> and, you, and you did the gardening job for how long? A couple of years when I lived in Oxford. And, and then when I came back to the States, I sort of picked it up and, and learned some more gardening from friends, etc. And yeah. Then, then you decided to move back. Then there. I went back to England. And Why? Lived, uh, because we missed it. By that time, I'd met my wife in England. Two of us were Americans, uh, but we were really— You just crossed paths over there, too. We Americans. crossed paths in a, uh, a, a, a poetry class because <laughs> a friend of mine was teaching a class— and asked me to come in and read. Did poetry. she park her Volkswagen next to your Volkswagen? <laughs> no, she. The the story that we tell often is that she was wearing LL Bean boots, and I had lived in Maine, and so I remarked about her LL Bean boots, and here we are. <laughs> that was a key. <laughs> that was a key. That was your opening line. Actually, the real key was that a week later, because I was scheduled to go back to the states, and a week later. We saw a poster for a Wordsworth Festival in London, and it was being opened by Seamus Heaney uh, before he won the Nobel Prize. And the second night, Basil Bunting, who was my teacher at Binghamton by some odd chance, a great Northumbrian poet, were reading Wordsworth. And so I stayed, and she and I, that was our first date, was to go to the Wordsworth Festival. Now, do you find, I don't think this is necessarily so, but do you find that your passion for and your immersion in literature and poetry and your work with, in agriculture go hand in hand? Oh, yeah, they do go hand in hand, yeah. I can't quite explain it, um, right. but but they go hand or in hand. Or should you, yeah. 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 Either you get it or you don't. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you go to England for 10 years. Right. right. And you are involved in agriculture the whole time? Or are you studying literature? <laughs> are you teaching? What are you doing? Uh, a little bit of a little bit of both, actually, or all of that. But we lived on a um, Cornish hillside. So after Oxford, um, my wife read a book 
called The Cry of a Bird, written by this woman who started a bird sanctuary in a little village called Mausel. And we uh, went down as caretakers after they had died of of their studio and their cottage. And uh, and the, their publishers owned, owned the places at that time. And they after we were there for three months, they said, well, it seems, you know, you're the ones who should be here. Do you want to buy the places? So we had never thought of settling in Mausel or or England for that matter, and nor did we have any money, but we figured it out, and uh, we bought this studio and cottage and stayed there for eight years. So, Were any of your kids born over there? Yeah. My oldest, Levin, Levin was born uh, and had a Cornish accent, so it was really, really fascinating to have his American parents with him. Where did he little... go to school over there? That's when we came back, when he got to school age, but he did, he was enrolled in a preschool, and then he went to, you know, a kindergarten for a while. And, and you came back for that Came reason. back when he was about five, because... It wasn't really working. Schooling, it didn't seem quite right. So we thought, well, let's try it out. You know, it's our first kid. Let's, you know, and you're really focused on that sort of thing. And so, and also at, by that time, we'd lived eight years in this little fishing village and uh, life was good, but my wife was missing home. And so we- Where's her home? Uh, her home was originally New Mexico. Uh, and then Berkeley in the 60s. and uh, You guys are touching all the lefty touchstones. Yeah, yeah. Ithaca, so ma- <laughs> Berkeley. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll get to that later on because <laughs> I, cause we actually, my wife grew up on this beautiful property along the Rio Grande. Her father had kept the land. He sold the house, but he'd kept this 10 acres of, of farm, farmland on the Rio Grande. And when he passed away, he left it to my wife and her brother. And, and we just put a conservation easement on this farmland in in that what do they grow there um lots of you know hot things peppers etc yeah. right and uh it's it's a beautiful beautiful place and uh you know 55 years later she's coming back to this land that she grew up on and uh, and we put an easement on it was f- really interesting for me to be on this side of it worked for a land trust creating conservation easements with other people for many years. And now I was on the side of being a landowner, creating an easement. It was It's a really beautiful thing. When you come back, uh, what year was that? 89? 89, yeah. Had you decided? Was there a preconception where you would go or you weren't sure? We, we No. We would touch base here because we had moved Connie here. and, and Connie, uh, your mom? Yeah, Connie's my, my wife's Do, mom. Or my your mother wife's mom. My mother oh, oh, sorry, okay. And why here? Uh, She she moved here because um, she was divorced at that time, and and her best friend was Elaine de Kooning. And uh, Elaine de Kooning had come to teach at the University of New Mexico when Connie was there many years before. As a matter of fact, um, there's a story of her dancing with Megan, my wife, in her arms when Megan was one year old. So that's that's the year. And Connie stayed friends with with Elaine, and she came out to visit Elaine. Uh, They took a walk found a, a house in the Northwest Woods, very close to here, and uh, Connie bought that house and moved, and we moved her. We were at this period where where we could help her out, and we moved and settled here for a little while to help her. Where? What part? Uh, it's um, Sag? Saddle Lane, no, in, so we were at Connie's house, and it's... Northwest. Uh, yeah, Northwest. It's, you know, a stone's throw from where we are right now. Right. Again, Elaine lived right around the, the corner. 
What I love is when we're talking, I don't know Mausel and I don't know these little Cornish <laughs> hillsides, but yeah. you and I talk and our listeners are probably going, what are you know, uh, Hans Creek, Northwest, Alewife <laughs> right. Brook. Right. It's, it's East Hampton, folks. This is right. Boot and East Hampton. When did Peconic Land Trust start? 83. There you go. 1983. And it was really because John Halsey, uh, who grew up in, in Southampton, had gone to school in, in California when he came back and he saw houses popping up in all the potato fields. And he said, this, this isn't right. Should do something about this. And he got together with some friends. He learned about land trusts because mm-hmm. uh, land trusts had, had been existent in this country since the 19th century, uh, but they didn't take off in a way until the 70s. John found out about land trusts and what land trusts could do, something that municipalities could not do, right, in protecting land and conserving land. And so 1983, he started it and started kind of slowly. Uh, but when I came it costs back... It a lot of money to run a land trust. a lot of money to buy land or protect yeah. land in the Hamptons, obviously, right? So... Um, I had never heard of a land trust before I got involved with the community farm. That was my first interest was that. But then I learned about what John was doing and John was open to this idea of of accepting the community farm, even though he'd never heard of a CSA either. But that marriage took place in 1989, the marriage between the community farm, where we talked about earlier, where my, my, my in-laws were part of those first 10 families, but wasn't connected to the land trust at the time. So that was a and when really, you say first 10 families, that first 10 families was doing what? Forming the CSA out here? Forming the CSA because they'd heard of this idea and it was, you know, this little kernel. What land yeah. were they were they farming then? Uh, it was in Bridgehampton. Uh, did you did you ever run into Hugh Williams? A guy named Hugh Williams. He yeah. had a so he had an apple orchard. Uh, he didn't own the land, but um, he was a biodynamic farmer. And the first CSAs, the idea of CSAs, started on biodynamic farms in different parts of this country. And uh, when I f- went to the first meetings of CSAs in a, a little Waldorf school, which is based on Rudolf Steiner's teachings uh, in Kimberton, Pennsylvania, there were 20 people, 25 people. The next year, there were 50 people and then 150 people. And CSAs began taking off all over the place. Now it's estimated that there are 6,000 or more in the country. Um, So it's just taken off like blossoms, basically. Coming up, Chasky discusses what community farming looks like in China. To hear from the founder of another socially conscious empire, this one a bit more caffeinated, Explore our archives to hear my conversation with Starbucks CEO, Howard Schultz. In the back of my mind, I kept dreaming about what I needed to do for my dad. And my dad died in 87. And I I wanted to try and build the kind of company he never got a chance to work for. So the entire business model was trying to balance profit with conscience, benevolence, and social impact. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Scott Chasky weaves together his passion for planting and prose. He's penned multiple books on the community farming movement, most recently Seed Time. Through decades of thoughtful farming in his fields, Fueled by an earnest desire to do good, he's created a roadmap for the kind of food creation that America desperately needs. 
I mean, what, what's happened is that, and I don't think we could have predicted this in the beginning, is that it would take off the way that it has. So that our, I feel that our real influence goes way beyond those fields. For instance, so listen to this. I never would have guessed so that, you know, we're doing this kind of work and spreading the word in this country. But I just went to a, a global CSA conference in China in November with people from 28 different countries. And I never would have guessed that that level of engagement and would, would, would happen, you know, from, from starting a community farm in, in Amagansett. So I was on a, on a panel discussing biodiversity in China with a, a Japanese farmer, a French farmer, and a, and a, and a Chinese academician. It was absolutely fascinating. And, and so the reach of what we've done uh, what I'm saying is, is goes far beyond our fields, and but my attention daily is on those fields. How many separate parcels of land, other than the the classic Quail Hill down there right. by the by the windmill? Right. Uh, what other? How many other areas are you responsible for? How many fields? Well, so the total acreage that Deborah left was 228. And you're managing Deb- that. We lease some to part of our mission as a land trust and and as a community farm is to lease land. Basically, when you ask, you know, who's farming, who are we employing, the way we've done it all these years is that we have an apprenticeship. And so we're actually training young farmers to, you know, go out and manage their own farms, basically. And so uh, uh, Katie and Amanda from Amber Waves were my apprentices, and now they're in their seventh or eighth year of yeah. running their own farm right well, over John, the railroad tracks. Yeah. And, and that's land that that's land that we had managed for another landowner as well. So. What's your staff at the height of the summer? You have how many people on your staff? Ten at the, ten. Ten at ten. the most. It's and and we we could. Uh, Is it tough to find those ten in the summer, or is it easy? N- no, because we're well known now. We get a fair amount of applicants for the apprenticeships, and we actually get to choose, which is a and they a come nice from where all, all over, over. And, yeah, and you house them. Over. We house them. That was the most difficult sure, thing. Where's your house? What's your housing plan here? Uh, we've got uh, three houses, which we sort of accumulated over the years, one way or another. Basically, Deborah left us one. Where her I had caretaker. a feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but the uh, um, the other two. I mean, we moved a house. It was a, a '60s ranch house oh, that actually. Where'd um, you put it? We had a 92-acre piece that had a separate lot on it so that we wouldn't – and we put it right on the edge of the separate lot. What are you doing on that 92 acres? It's habitat. It's right, it's it. land preserver habitat, right, basically. It. Yeah. So when these well, – what's this, the number of people off-season with you? Two. Two. <laughs> It's a little lonely, but we have a winter share, so we actually have people coming all winter to to, uh, to pick up vegetables. It's not just the summer. We have a traditional root cellar, and we store crops in the root cellar, and people come all winter, and so they get. We grow greens in the greenhouse, and etc. So, if you can compare and contrast, if you would, I'm, I'm not, not, not assuming that one is favorable and one is not, but techniques and philosophy even that you witnessed mm. and that you lived over in England compared mm. to the way it is here. Mm. What do they do better than we do and what do we do better than they do, <laughs> if anything? They do better by uh, having a sense of history that is not ignored. So, I mean, that's a very general statement, but, you know, this thing re- recently, um, I've been doing some reading and, and, and returning to this, the thought that in, in this country, we are people 
without history, right. uh, you know, and, and um, of course there's lots of history, but we live as though we have no time for history. We have no time for history. So, I, I mean, that's what I was fascinated by in England. I mean, I would have been anywhere else in Europe as well, just happened to settle in England, but that's what I felt there. And I felt perfectly at home with that concept. And, and I, a more thoughtful I, I miss approach. Yeah. yeah. In the end, it is a more thoughtful approach. Yeah. Americans I mean, are in such a hurry. Yeah, I guess people are in a hurry all over the world now. But um, this trip to China was eye-opening. It was absolutely eye-opening. Like, what does a community farm look like in China? And how do you help the Chinese leapfrog to where you think they should be? Yeah, and why are they at all interested? And what does it actually mean? And it was it was absolutely fascinating and quite. Actually, they're putting a lot. The the local governments are putting lots of energy into that in a way that isn't happening in this country at all. I mean, the, what we're talking about, the kind of work we're doing, is all grassroots, and it's not you know funded by government at all. Um, in in China, they're worried about feeding people. You know, well, I mean, I think that you you bring you come to a point that I was going to get to, which is among the quickest paths to political instability is a collapse of the food supply. And the problem in the United States is that we produce more than enough food for three square meals for everyone in the country, right. and, the, and, the, and the gap there is distribution. Right, and that's true worldwide. I'll never forget when I was going to sell my house, and um, my friend said to me, uh, well, you know, don't, they said, don't sell that house. They said, you know, that probably, you got 10 acres there. You know, you got to, and they said, because, you know, within the next 15, 20 years, we're all going to be growing our own mm, food. Right in this kind of global warming uh, right. uh, prelude, you know. And uh, I wonder if you think that that's true. Are people going to start growing water politics? Yeah. Well, I- I'm sure that more people are going to have to be engaged in growing food uh, in in a sustainable fashion than we have now because we're down to 1% of our population engaged in agriculture, whereas before the Second World War, 50% of the population lived on farms. So this is extraordinary, and that is not sustainable, nor is the the kind of um, corporate approach to, you know, the industrialization of agriculture that you're talking about. That really isn't sustainable, and so we have to come up with some other ways, and that's kind of what we're doing in our small way, and it's going to involve more people. That's 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 the way it is. Are there major companies who you admire the way that they produce their products and grow food, or you, or, or, or is all of the mass production of food, you know, without saying anything litigious? Yeah, yeah. You know, is there, are, are they all basically the same and cutting the same corners, or, is, or are there companies you actually admire what they do? I don't know. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, there was some nothing. Nothing's jumping into mind immediately, but it is a slippery slope because of the. I don't know if you've seen the charts of who actually owns, you know, the natural food companies. You right. know, and and they're almost yeah. all owned. The ones who yeah. are pledge, like the oil pledging companies on the solar power companies. Yeah. So 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 you know that's a very slippery slope, and we are trying to change. That. That. And I mean, I don't I know of no other way to change it other than by actively working on it the way that we are. My fondness is more for people who are working on it on the, on the grassroots, all, all the not for profits who are supporting uh, young farmers getting into into this style of agriculture or whatever. So I can't think of a single company right now that I, I want to give all my praise to. It's really the all the people who are working behind the scenes on, uh, in a grassroots way, basically. Yeah. What do you think about the whole foods revolution? Yeah, um, well, showing up in neighborhoods that you, I never imagined they would be in in New York and so yeah, forth. Yeah, well, uh, it, it's serving, it's serving some purpose. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah. 
So you're out here at a restaurant, an, an ordinary restaurant, or even a top restaurant with a very expensive menu, and the produce on the on the on the table, the tomatoes and the greens and so forth, is usually coming from up island, correct? It varies a lot, but there's. A, I'd rather talk about the local chefs who have been incredibly supportive of what we do and who buy. So more of them are from, doing that. Oh yeah, many more. Because aren't the big so, so for people to understand as precious as this area is, yeah, the big big farming operations for this area are up island and Mariches and Riverhead, correct? Well, they're Satter is up as up island. Yeah. Well, no, they're on the North Fork. Oh, they're on the North yeah, Fork. They're right. on the North Fork, and they're selling primarily to you know high end restaurants, etc. Right. But there are a number of local chefs who've been like, you know, we 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 started a garden behind Nick and Tony's restaurant twenty five years ago, and uh, they've always been incredibly supportive. And so there's Nick and you know Jeff. Sure. And 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 then uh, uh, Joe Realmuto from Nick and Tony's. There's Colin at Estia's. Sure. Uh, there's Jason at Almonds. You know these 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 chefs have been so incredibly supportive, and they we have a great relationship with. And they're not the only ones. So so during the years you've been out here for um, you know over twenty five years now, doing what you're doing now, uh, there's been this. I don't want to say revolution, but you can almost say that in terms of wineries and wine growing. Mm. And the conversion of North Fork properties, for people who don't know this area, that's across the uh, the bay from us, uh, North Fork properties into wineries. How do, what do you make of that operation? You, is that something that you were surprised by? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think everyone was surprised by I mean, 1975, I think, was the first one. and uh, The Channing? Uh, no. Uh, the first one... Um, Hmm. I've forgotten the name right now, but on the North Fork, there's only, you know, there's only three wineries on the South Fork. There's right. 50 or so on the North Fork. Right. I think everyone's surprised that in since 75, that many have popped up. Uh, we have a very close relationship with, with Channing, yeah, and with Wolfer. And, uh, yeah. you know, I'm very supportive of, of, of how they're caring for the land and tending for the land, yeah. It's amazing to yeah. me in the time I've been out here how they, you know, the, yeah, unbelievable. the harvesting of the, of the clippings and the soil and everything, getting that ready. And some people say, because it was always a very reductive attitude toward that wine. Yeah. I'm not yeah. a wine drinker myself, but people yeah. would say to me, oh, please, if you came to a house and said, yeah. I want to bring some indigenous wine, yeah. <laughs> people would look at you and go, why are you bothering doing that? Yeah. Yeah. And well, now all of a sudden some of those wines oh, are they're producing. Wines. Oh, they're producing some great wines now. Yeah. 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 But it is interesting how they just, uh, how yeah. much is mushroomed. It's a wonderful climate for growing things. You know, we're in zone seven. We're one of the only places in the Northeast that has a growing climate that, that is a zone seven climate. So that's the amount of growing days that you have. And also uh, we have a fair amount of sun. Kutchog is the sunniest town in New York state. Not many people are aware of that. So we get the right amount of rain. We have these beautiful soils left by the glaciers. And we have a very forgiving climate for growing things. Yeah. What was an interesting, um, if you can say, what was a, an interesting issues or challenges you had with raising your own children in terms of food? Well, and naturally, they, you know, they're really great kids, by the way, three, three. And um, growing up, you know, they enjoyed going to other people's homes where food was served that they didn't get in our home. Uh, but For example? Uh, well, meat for one. So my wife and I are both vegetarians. But interestingly enough, our, our two sons, so I have two sons and a daughter, and the two sons really need meat. And they, you know, they, they, we found that out as they were growing up. And so I tried, I mean, I, I'm the cook in the family and I did my best, but, um, 
I don't I don't think it was really what they were getting in other households. <laughs> so that was something they missed. And of course, we didn't serve a lot of sweets at all. And we were fairly strict about that. And then we learned later when they grew up about the stash that they had in their room, you know, after after Halloween or something like that. But, you know, now that they're in their 20s, my oldest son is 32, um, and they come back, they're so appreciative of growing up in a household with, with fresh food. It's a latency to with, that. Yeah. So, you know, gr- growing up, there were, you know, there were arguments, one or two. <laughs> but, well, it's funny because on our website, people will see a picture of you. We're going to post mm. a picture of you. Mm. And everybody knows you from your striking facial hair, your yeah. gigantic <laughs> and beautiful uh, 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 beard and your thick mane of hair. And your... Thank you for nominating me for best beard, by the way. My son sent me a Apparently, you made a comment. So. Yeah, you, you do have the best beard. <laughs> you and the Smirnoff vodka man are tied for the best beard. Uh, but um, now, 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 for you doing this job, you're fit as a fiddle. You're a very lean, spry. In spite of your golden beard, you're you're physically very on your toes. But I'm imagining you're not going to do this forever. And the question becomes, how yeah. does Scott Chasky replace Scott Chasky? Is there a succession program? I mean, right now, uh, you know, we, there's a number of people who can who can take over doing what I'm doing. So I'm not really worried about that. How much that longer do you think you're going to do it? Probably at the most a couple of years. I'm in, si- in, 66 now, actually. And would you stay in the area after that? We'd want to travel a bit, I think. In this would this still land, be home, this though? Land and, this will probably be home. And the kids tell us you cannot sell the house yeah no so that's what they that's what they tell us so they they want to come back too so what about your writing and teaching mm. in the off season the other part of you mm. comes back in the wind in the see in the winter time yeah i mean that's um it i mean i do you know i'm writing in my notebook throughout the year but you know to actually finish a book i mean that does take the winter time for me but um that's what i'll be doing more of and i'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to do more of that now. So I've been working in the mornings before going to the farm writing for actually the last couple of years. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to finish those last two books that I that I wrote. So there's going to be a lot more of that. I'm working on a book now about Bill King, about my my father-in-law, who uh, who was a sculptor and a really great man. And so that's that's my work for this winter. Yeah. Well, I must say that. I can't imagine this community without you. <laughs> Thank you. you know, you're such an important part of this community because you, because you. just, it's funny how, because you're so striking looking, <laughs> with the beard and everything, but uh, for obvious reasons, but I'm saying you're so striking looking. But whenever people see you, you symbolize the fires burning of the mm. agricultural mantle of this community. Mm. I, I can't get over how important that is, mm. that we don't just save land that's all wooded land. Mm that what you're doing hopefully carries on. Mm. Um, While I have you, I want to take advantage of one one thing, which is now that I have little children and I finally get around to doing my organic plot on my property next Mm. summer, Mm. what should we be growing that's nice and easy for my little kids to get involved in? What's an easy thing to grow? A starter. You know, people, I mean, almost everybody likes tomatoes. tomatoes. So cherry, <laughs> cherry, you have to grow cherry tomatoes, right? And there's this okay. one called sun gold that everyone absolutely adores. That's what but we're also, doing. you know, some squash, you know, that's uh, summer squash grows fast and, you know, um, it keeps coming. So that's a good thing to grow. We have a little patch on the side of our house. And I said to my daughter, what do you want to grow? And she said, pumpkins. Oh, why not? <laughs> why not? <laughs> I, I don't know if I'm... Okay, we'll share some seeds with you, but I also uh, demand that you have to grow garlic. That's my favorite crop, so... And it's very easy to grow. 
talking about his dual love of writing and farming, Scott Chasky says it has something to do with, quote, being in touch with the soil and then actually having some time for solitude and reflection. No better time than now to heed his advice. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the Thing comes from WNYC Studios.